Today I want to talk to you about how to face the future. I think you'd agree with this statement, there's a lot of anxiety about the future. Would you agree with that? Especially uh, in light of what's going on in our world today and the events that are happening and Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before our very eyes. There may be more anxiety going on right now than at any other period of time, at least in modern history. According to an article, by the way, in, uh, in Bloomberg Business News just a few years ago, they addressed uh, uh, a company that maybe you've heard of. It's the company called Psychic Friends, the Psychic Friends Network. You ever heard of the Psychic Friends Network? It's a Nevada-based company, or it was, I should say. And just a few years ago, they released a, uh, an aggressive presentation as part of a filing with the S Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, you see, they were trying to reinvent themselves. In 1998, its parent company went bankrupt. And so they're trying to make a comeback, or at least they were a few years ago. And in this uh, filing to the Securities and Exchange Commission, in this presentation, they said, and I quote, uh, our return will be bigger, bolder, and better than ever. And as a publicly traded company, they promised to leverage their iconic brand name, the Psychic Friends Network, using the new technologies of our day and social media to reestablish the Psychic Friends Network as an industry leader for daily horoscopes and, and psychic advice. In fact, uh, when they released this, the company's website advertised, we all want to know what our future holds. For centuries, great leaders have sought and found the vital psychic edge, and now so can you. In this report, the company boldly forecasted $64 million worth of income over the next three years from its reinventing uh, itself. But listen, ironically, the first page of its investor presentation included this cautionary note. Undue reliance should not be placed on the forward-looking statements because Psychic Friends Network can give no assurance that they will prove to be correct. <laughs> Today, the Psychic Friends Network no longer exists. You would have thought they'd have seen it coming, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I, I say that to say people today are obsessed with the future. Uh, in a month, Lord willing, uh, we will enter a new year. And at the beginning of each new year, the newsstands and the websites will be filled with articles and prognostications and fortune tellers that will purportedly tell us about what's coming in the year ahead. You know how that happens every, every year. And it's amazing how some people, uh, some people can't wait for that, to hear what's going to happen and what's the news and uh, what are they saying about the future. Some people look to tea leaves. Some people go to soothsayers. Some people consult foolishly the pages of astrology, looking to find answers about tomorrow. And by the way, the pages of Scripture tell us that these are all godless sources and tools of the devil. And then there are other people who simply bring their intellect and their intuition and their minds and they say, well, this is what has happened in the past. These are the trends that I have been watching or observing. 
And so given what's happened in the past and the trends that seem to be occurring, this is what will happen. The fact is everybody's interested in knowing about the future. Christians are too. But there's really only one source of wisdom about the future, and there's only one place that gives us insight into the future and, and how to live in the here, of now, uh, here and now in light of the future. And that, of course, is God's Word, and the reason is because only God really knows the future. Amen? The Bible says that God is the Alpha and the Omega. That means He's the beginning and the end. And it says that, the, that God knows the end from the beginning. You know, time is relevant to us. We always talk in terms of time, right, and schedule, and it's, rele it's relevant to us. But did you know time is irrelevant to God? Did you know God is already in the future? You see, there's no such thing with God as past and present and future. God, God is in all time, and God is already in our futures. And because that's, uh, that's a fact and that's true, we need to look to God and to His Word to understand how we face the future. And so I want us to look at our text this morning from James chapter 4. If you're physically able to do so, why don't you stand with me? Beginning in verse 13, we read, James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is the place that we go to, to say, Father, how do we live today for tomorrow? We thank you for your counsel. We pray that today you would speak to our hearts, that you'd use your Holy Spirit to take your word and minister its truth to us. Father, I pray now that you'd take my words, you'd take my thoughts, you'd take my study time, and you'd use it all, Father, to help us understand more clearly your truth. Use it now. We're listening, and we want to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, in this passage, James is dealing with people that had miscalculated and were actually acting like they had control of time. They had control of their tomorrows. They had control of their future. And so he's writing to them because the problem wasn't that they didn't plan. This indicates that they were planners. They were thinking about what do we do today or tomorrow or even a year out. The problem wasn't that they didn't plan. The problem was... They didn't include God in their planning. There are a lot of people today, and they, they, they plan about tomorrows, and, and they think about their tomorrows and the years to come, but they don't include God in the mix. And James, so James isn't condemning them for planning, but rather he's, he's talking to them about the problem of setting an agenda for their life without first getting the input of God and God's will. So I encourage you to plan. I encourage you to think about the tomorrows and the years to come. But I also say, as James would say to us, is make sure you factored God's will into your plans. Paul made plans, but he did so in full cooperation with 
God's prerogative to change his plans. In fact, listen to what what is written in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 and following. It said, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you get the message of of what's going on there? Paul and his uh, assistants were planning to go to Mysia. That's where they had, uh, they just uh, assumed that's where God wanted them to go. That was the next stop. That's where they were going to go. But the Holy Spirit prohibited them. It spoke to their heart, put a check in their spirit that that's not where God wanted them to go. And so what did they do? Well, they stopped before they went to Mysia. They headed toward Bithynia. And when they got to Bithynia, God spoke to Paul in a dream. And in that dream, he said, I want you to go to Macedonia. It's one of the great missionary, it sparked one of the great missionary movements of early Christianity. And so Paul went into uh, Macedonia. But do you get the point that Paul was sensitive enough to God say, here's where we're going But God, you can adjust our plans at any point in time, and we will be sensitive enough to hear it. He was sensitive enough to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so when the Spirit spoke, he said, guys, there's a new game plan. The plan we had is not the plan we're going to follow through with. God has a different plan for us. And so they adjusted their plan. In our passage, James is writing to some believers who apparently believed that they and they alone would make their life plans. They would determine when they would go today or tomorrow. They would determine where they would go into this or that city. And they would would determine why they would go. They said, we're going to go to sell or to make a profit. You see, instead of looking to God for guidance in the process of their planning, they acted for all intent and purposes, as if God didn't even exist. God never even factored in. This is what James is addressing to them, that you and I are to live our lives, and we're to plan for our tomorrows, but we're to plan with, the, with God in mind. We're to plan with the will of God before us. Now, God, here's, here's what I think uh, uh, the next step is, but God, what is your will? Uh, God, interrupt your will. Uh, I became familiar with this early in my ministry, the uh, need to say, God, you interrupt if I'm going in the wrong direction. I had, uh, I, I had a church in uh, Florida that had contacted me. This is many years ago, uh, long before I was your pastor. I was young in ministry, and they said, we want you to come and be our pastor. And uh, I said, well, I'll pray about that. And so I began to pray about that, and they said... Um, everybody around, all my friends in ministry are saying, oh, you've got to go do this. This is, it's in the perfect location. This area is exploding. If you go there, the church will explode and all of this kind of stuff. It had all of the outward indicators of what a, I guess you would say a person wants if they're looking for a place to serve God. And so I began, I listened to that counsel and I began to pray about it and, and, um, and they finally said, hey, we think you're the guy. 
And we need to know, will you come and be our pastor? And I said, well, God hasn't spoken to me yet. God hasn't told me uh, to do that yet. And, and, and I have to be honest, all my friends were saying, are you kidding? Tell them I'll come do it. And I said, but God hasn't spoken to me, and God hasn't told me this. And Alice and I talked about it, and she didn't have a word from the Lord. And, and so uh, I, I, I began to get anxious about it all. God, I guess I'm supposed to do this. I don't, you know, I don't, but I didn't have this word. I guess if, and so finally they said to me, after me putting them off for probably six to eight weeks, they said, we, we need to know something by the, that coming Thursday. And, um, and, and so I got to that point, I couldn't sleep at night. Uh, I literally would have, would have cold sweats and, because my, my great fear was I didn't want to miss God. If this was something I was supposed to do, I didn't want to miss the will of God, but I didn't want to step out of the will of God and go do something that God didn't want me to, to do. It was just that kind of spiritual conundrum. And I remember <clears throat> that finally I told God, a couple of days before, I said, God, I've got to tell them something by Thursday, and you haven't given me a word. And, and everybody says this is the perfect place and the perfect opportunity. And I said, so, Lord, if you don't tell me anything else, I'm going to accept their invitation to be their pastor. Uh, because I don't have peace not responding, and I don't have peace. So I'm just, God, I, I've got, and then I prayed this. So, God. Don't let me step out of your will. Interrupt this, Father, if this is not of you. And so it came, it came time. The, th the Thursday was coming. The next day, I, got, I remember where I was. I'm walking around in a hospital. I'm making a visit in a hospital. God says a lot of things in hospitals. And I'm visiting some people that are sick in the hospital. And I'm in between rooms. I'm walking down a hall. And suddenly, as if a voice spoke into my heart loudly, God said, no. And that's how it sounded to me. No. No. And I knew what it was about because I'm walking around. Lord, I'm going to visit these sick people. But God, am I supposed to go do this? No. And when... And by the way, I stopped. I remember kind of doing that. Have you ever had that kind of voice from God? And you think, I think everybody in the hospital just heard God say, no. <laughs> but it was just me. And, but immediately when he said that, the burden was lifted. Perfect peace settled over me. Now, this is in the days, I'll tell you how old this is. This is in the days when you had to use pay phones. If you were out and about, you didn't have a cell phone. There's a generation today that has no idea what I'm talking about. But I immediately walked to the payphone at the hospital and called the chairman of the committee. I said, I need to tell you something. The Lord spoke to me. I'm so sorry. I haven't intended to put you guys off. But I said, the Lord just spoke to me. And he said, no. Thank you. I'm honored. But no. And they were very gracious and very kind. But God taught me. God taught me in that moment. You listen. I will speak. If you'll listen to me, I will speak. I may not speak as fast, but he prevented me from going into Mysia. He prevented me from going in to Mysia. You get it? Just like Paul. This is what James is talking about. Instead of looking to God for guidance, they were looking at everything else. And he's saying, 
make sure the will of God factors in to your future. Now, with that in mind, let me give you a couple of things that can negatively affect your outlook on the future. Number one are presumptions. What are presumptions? What, am I, what do I mean, especially in the context of our passage? And that is presumption is all about, about <clears throat> how things are operating, the future, how things are operating around you. In other words, this is how things have been operating, so I presume this is how things will always operate. Right? Kind of like the old line, have you ever heard from a, a church? Well, this is how we've always done it. And so because we've always done it, we presume this is how we'll always do it. That's what presumptions are. And they, they were full of presumptions about the future. Well, this is how it is operated. In the, and this really relates to what's going on out there. So this is how it's always operated. This is how it will operate. They made presumptions. James is referring to this as an arrogant kind of thing. We, we know how it's going to operate. We know how it's going to operate. And so we're making our plans based on how it's always operated. That's presumptions. The second thing are assumptions. And that's a little bit different than presumptions. Presumptions presume upon something. Something has always operated this way. Something will always, uh, it will continue to operate that way. But assumptions about the future in this context are related to how we personally are affected by the future. And this refers, again, to the arrogant kind of assuming that we are in control of the events and circumstances around us. Presumption says that this is the way it's operated. Assumptions say this is the way I operate. And it, it, both of these are very arrogant. I, I'm in control. Uh, and both of them are negative when they happen. Now, there are some things that we can assume. Sometimes there are things that you can assume from Scripture. There are things you can presume from Scripture. But what they were doing, it was all self-centered presumptions and assumptions. It was all about them. And so uh, James is addressing that. So let me give you three things that James teaches us that I believe then will help us face the future with faith rather than fear. And you understand that's how God wants you to live. He wants you to walk by faith and not by fear. And so if you're not careful today, you'll walk by fear. There's a lot of fearful stuff going on in our world. So let me give you three things that James teaches us that will help us face the future with faith rather than with fear. Number one, in verse 13, James teaches us that we must acknowledge the unpredictability of tomorrow. We must acknowledge the unpredictability of tomorrow. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. They were boasting about their plans as if they were in control, as if they were uh, 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 completely aware of what was going on. They completely disregarded the purpose of God for their lives. They were living with, here it is, the assumption that they were guaranteed a tomorrow. They were living with the assumption they were guaranteed a tomorrow. And James is writing to say, look, you come you who say today or tomorrow or, or even the year, th this is all unpredictable. Let me give you three thoughts as you think about that. First of all, <clears throat> I think this teaches us something that's very helpful if we get it. And that is that it is dangerous to live with an attitude of self-sufficiency. We don't know the future. 
And so that means we dare not trust ourselves about the future, but we must trust the one who does. Self-sufficient living, you see, removes the influence of God over our lives. Listen to what Proverbs 27 and verse 1 says. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day may bring. And so they were, they were boasting about tomorrow. This is why he calls all of this arrogant down in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting, he says, is evil. Why is it evil? It's evil because it is misleading. It's evil because it, it assumes that you're in control. And that's what they believe. So God was not even a factor as they thought about their tomorrow, today or tomorrow, and they were boasting about it. They were going, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And, in, and to help you have some context, the picture in mind here uh, was of a businessman. And, he, and he's in control of his business. And so he's thinking about the future, and he says, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to today or tomorrow, it may be in the next couple of days, he said, I'm going to go to another place, and, and there I'm going to set up my business. I'm going to operate like I've always done, and I'm going to make a profit. and do." So he was making this arrogant assumption that he was actually in control of his destiny. Has it ever occurred to you that you are not in control ultimately of what's in the future? And we have to acknowledge the unpredictability of tomorrow. There are some things we can know, and there are some things that can give us insight, but we have to admit that, that it's a bit unpredictable, and it's dangerous to live with an attitude of self-sufficiency. Let me give you this other thought. <clears throat> While it's dangerous to live with this attitude of self-sufficiency, it's not wrong to think about tomorrow. But it's unwise to assume that there will always be a tomorrow. Does that make sense? Someone has said this, that we should plan like we will live for 100 years, but we should live like today is our last. Plan like we'll be here for the next century, but, but live like today will be our last. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 90 in verse 12 said, So teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach us to, to understand this may be my last day. Teach us to number our days. The Bible teaches that we all have a, a window of time, and it's different for all, for, uh, all of us. <clears throat> and that's why it's so important that we understand how to make the best of the time that we have. Then here's a third thought I would give you. Jesus told us to focus on today first. In other words, don't try to live in tomorrow today. Um, Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now when Jesus made that statement, he's not saying don't ever think about tomorrow. He's saying, but don't try to live in tomorrow today. You can't do it. And by the way, God will not give you tomorrow's grace today. He gives you the grace you need to follow him if you will pursue him today in this time. And James's message is clear. The future is unpredictable. We must not presume upon it 
and do not assume that you will have a tomorrow. But you do have today. You got right now. Right now counts forever. It's a little phrase I heard, I don't know, three decades ago, and I, I put it on a lot of different things just to remind me. Right now counts forever. What you're doing right now counts forever. You don't, have, you don't know if you have tomorrow, but you do have today. You have right now, and right now uh, counts. It counts forever. Give it to God and then live it for God. All right? So we must acknowledge the unpredictability of tomorrow. The second thing, if you want to face the future with faith, is that you must accept the brevity of life. Verse 14, did you notice what he says? He says, it's a rhetorical question James asks. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while. It's a picture of a vapor. You know, you've seen a mist rising off a boiling pot, for example. The mist comes up or the vapor comes up and it's there and then it just disappears. James says that's that's what our life uh, is like. Uh, a prophet in the Old Testament uh, referred to as kind of like a grasshopper. You know, you're here and you, <laughs> you hop around for a little while and then you're gone. He says, don't you understand that your life is brief? That's what he's saying. And in the context of eternity, life really is short, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, in the context of eternity, life really is short. That's why, again, this life is so important. You don't get a do-over. You know, I've told you about that before. In golf, you get a mulligan sometimes. You don't get a mulligan at life. You don't say, I think I'll go back and, and do that over. Life is right now. It's in the here and now. And the here and now and the right now make all the difference in your eternity. I remember when I was young, when I was a teenager. I remember those years. When I thought, when I thought people my age we're old. I just uh, celebrated my 64th birthday just a few weeks ago, and I remember I used to think, my goodness, 64-year-old people, how do they even move around? You know, they're old. Now, I'm beginning to understand a little bit of that, too, but I remember thinking how old that was. Now, I are there. And I've decided something, that 64 is the new 35, okay? <laughs> well, James isn't being morbid with us here. He's not trying to discourage you by saying, your life's just a mist. Your life is just a vapor. He's not trying to be morbid, and he's not trying to scare you or spook you. But what he is doing is he's giving us perspective that is essential to making our life right now meaningful. You see, if you set your life in light of eternity, it changes your perspective on what's important and why you should live your life with an eternal purpose, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about that, life is brief. And if you understand the brevity of life, you accept the brevity. And by the way, you might as well accept it because you can't change it. You accept the brevity of God, I accept that. I accept that you have a window for my life. The Bible says that before, before you were born, all the days of your life were put down in his book. And it's different for all of us. You, uh, you, you say, well, 
I don't, I don't get that. Well, because God has a purpose for your life and a specific reason that you're here, then consequently you have a specific time frame. It may be longer than others. It may be shorter than others. But that is really irrelevant in light of eternity because eternity goes on and on and on, right? So you see, when you get this, it gives you perspective. You really are passing through. But because you're passing through, you're passing through to something, you're passing through to eternity. So that means every day counts right here and now. Every second really does matter. There's a fictitious story in literature about a man who opens a newspaper and he discovers the date on the newspaper that he opens up is six months into the future. And so he begins to read through the newspaper and he discovers stories about events that haven't even taken place yet. And then he turns to the sports page, Lance. He turns to the sports page and he looks and he sees the outcome of games before they've ever been played. And then he, he turns to, the, he turns to the, the financial section and he begins to see stocks that have risen greatly over the six months from where he is. And then he has this incredible idea. He thinks, you know what? <laughs> Since I already know the outcome of some of these sporting events, I can bet money on those events because I know, and I can pick the underdogs that come out on top, and I can make a whole lot of, I can become comfortably wealthy. I can invest in stocks that are not worth much of anything right now but are going to be worth something down the road and I can, I can set myself up for the rest of my life. He thought, this is wonderful. And so he begins to think as he gets closer to those times what he'll do, what his strategy will be. And then he flips on through the paper a little further and he comes to the, the obituaries. And when he comes to the obituary column, he sees his picture and a description of his life. And it changes everything for him. Because he suddenly realizes he's got six months. How does he make his life count? How does he make? The knowledge of his death changes his view about wealth. Suddenly that betting on the, the sporting events or investing in something, suddenly that's all irrelevant. It's kind of like the story Jesus told of the man. Remember, he had the crops, and he was so successful with his crops, and, and he, he had a bumper crop, and he didn't know what to do with the, he filled up his, his barns. He said, now what am I going to do? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns to house this incredible produce that I, I have. I, that's what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And so he builds bigger barns, and then the Bible says he sits down in his rocking chair, and he looks at all he's accumulated, and, and suddenly an angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, you're a fool. You're a fool, because this very night your soul is required of you. And all of this stuff that you have amassed, whose will it be? You see, because he had said this after he sat down in his rocking chair, he said, according to the Scripture, my soul, look at all that you have. 
you are set for life. Go read the story. You're set for life. But he didn't know that that night God would call his soul to eternity. You see, the, the, the tomorrows are unpredictable and life is brief. And we have to understand that to be able to live effectively for the future. In fact, Paul put it this way in Ephesians 5. He said, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Hello. Welcome to the New Testament. Like Paul, James, I think, would ask all of us today, are you living with eternity in mind? Are you living with eternity in mind? Are you making the most of your time? Because life is brief. You may live to be 105 years old. But do you know that's relatively short compared to eternity? You may live to be 60. It's a short time. It's a short time in light of eternity. And since time is so short, we must live with eternity in mind, making the most of the time that we have been given. And because it is brief, comparatively speaking, then that leads me to the last thing I want to show you this morning. And that is, that is to face the future you must face it by affirming the priority of God's will. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I ask you this morning, how are you approaching life? Is your prayer, Lord, bless what I am doing? Or is your prayer, Lord, help me do what you're blessing? And there's a big difference between those two prayers. You see, the first one tries to make my will God's will, while the second one says, God, not my will, but your will be done. And you know, the will of God trumps everything. The will of God trumps everything. You remember some months ago, I did a series on the will of God, and in every message, I would repeat something to you. You remember it? The most important thing in the universe is what, class? It's the will of God. The most important thing in the universe, the most important thing in all creation is the will of God. Nothing trumps the will of God. It's the most important thing. And by the way, whether you do it or not, it's still the most important thing in the universe. But I added to that a second statement, and, that it, and because the most important thing in the universe is the will of God, the most important thing in your life then is to do the will of God. If that's the most important thing in the universe, and it is, then the most important thing is that you do the will of God. So why should you live your life for the will of God? Well, let me give you some final thoughts. Number one, because you were created for God's pleasure. This is why you should align your life with the will of God. I don't know if we fully comprehend that, but you have been created for the will of God. You have been created for the pleasure of God. Revelation 4.11, write that down, look at it later. But he says, you are worthy, O God, for, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things 
and for your pleasure they are and were created. So everything that's ever been created was created for his pleasure. God designed you to have fellowship and to have a relationship with you uh, from which God derives great pleasure. Look, you're not a puppet. You're not a pet for God. We are made in his image so that we can walk with him and talk with him. And the relationship brings uh, fulfillment to us and pleasure to God. God created you for his pleasure. By the way, he didn't create you to, to punish you. Your sin changed that dynamic. But he created you for pleasure. He's created you for fellowship. He's created you for relationship. You were created, Revelation says, for his pleasure. And God derives great joy. You're not some pet. You're not some, some animal. You know, there's a difference between animal kind and humankind. Because animals aren't created in the image of God. But you're created in the image of God. Why? So you could have this kind of dynamic relationship and dynamic fellowship. And God didn't create you because he was bored. He created you because there's pleasure in the relationship. I remember when our daughter was born. I remember, man, the pleasure. I just blew me away. I, I never experienced anything. I didn't understand that. I, I'd heard people talk about the joy of having children and all. I, I didn't understand that. By the way, we're going to, in the next service, we're going to dedicate eight babies. We've had so many this year that we're having to do a second dedication. We got more uh, coming there. Uh, the pleasure of these little ones. I remember when, when our daughter Karis was born and uh, the pleasure that it, it previously unknown and, and continues to bring to us all these years later. She's 34 years old now and there's still pleasure there. Why? Because uh, she came from me and from her mom too, by the way. In fact, her mom did more of the work than I did. But pleasure, I'd never known that kind of pleasure. I understood that. And then, (laughs) those grand boys came along. You talk about pleasure. I mean, relational, pleasure, wow. What pleasure they bring to Allison and to me. Why, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. My wife describes it this way. She says, it's like somebody takes your heart out of your chest and puts it on legs running around. And that's right, isn't it? Children, grandchildren, you know? What what is it? It's relational. We've had pets that we love. We thank God for pets. I I think pets, I mean this, are a gift from God. But they're not like kids. And they're especially not like grandkids. I mean, it's just so, the pleasure that's derived. This is what God wants from you. That's why he he wants relationship with you. If you don't know him today, make sure before you leave this place, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if you get that, then you understand what we mean by God creating you for his pleasure. The second thought that I would give you is you were created not only for God's pleasure, but for God's prominence. For his prominence. 
Isaiah 43, 7 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, listen to this statement, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were created for His prominence. You were created for His glory, to bring Him glory. You were created to reflect uh, the glory of God. You bear His image. You are the imago Dei. Have you ever heard that? It means you are the expression of the glory of God. You're the image of your heavenly Father. Children resemble their parents. You and I should resemble our heavenly Father. And when we do... We bring Him glory. We bring prominence to His name. You were created for His prominence. And then third, you were created for God's purpose. I love Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You were created for God's purpose. You're not an accident. You were carefully you were wonderfully crafted, the Bible says. You were designed to accomplish God's purpose and God's will. And listen, listen, you have everything you need to be everything God created you to be. I, I know you've heard this line before. Well, let's, we tell our kids you can be whatever you want to be. And that's just not true. You know, it's just not true. I know it's well-intentioned. But it's not true. Here's a better way of educating. You can be everything that God designed you to be. Now that's true. And that's still true of us. You can be everything that God created you to be because he created you to be what he created you. That's why, look, there are three things you ought to uh, remember. You ought to understand who you are. That is the way God has wired you. Number two, you ought to accept who you are, the way God. Now, don't excuse character issues. That's not what I'm saying, but accept, accept who you are. And number three, you ought to be who you are. Don't be a copycat. Learn from others. Admire things, but you be who you are for God. It'll give you great freedom, and guess what? It'll bring pleasure to God. As you align yourself with His purpose, this is what you've created me for. And I'm not going to try to be some... I may admire something someone else does or something someone else is, and I can learn things there, but I must be who I've been created to be. You must be who God designed you to be. That's how you will walk in step with His will in your relationship. You're not an accident. You're, you're not an accident. By the way, that's why evolution is such a uh, ridiculous theory. Because it, it basically, you know what evolution does? It removes meaning from life. So if you're just the product of some amino acids bumping together in some prehistoric soup and then getting struck by lightning and crawling out of the soup as a reptile that gets wings and, oh, well, you know. If that's what you are, guess what? You're a product of chance. And, and God is pointless. You're just a product of chance if evolution, which, by the way, is called a fact today, and it's not a fact at all. 
You understand it removes meaning from life. The survival of the fittest, all of this stuff, it's all about chance. You're just a product of chance. So if that's why a Harvard ethicist some years ago argued that we're all nothing more than high-class animals. And therefore, therefore, life is invaluable. You see, you've got to get back to a creator. Everything does eventually hinge on a creator. You were created for God's purpose. You're not an accident, and you can accomplish uh, His purpose. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie explored the Bible's views on the brevity of human life, and at one point in his career, he wrote, Life is extremely short, true, James says it, and if its meaning is to be found, it must, listen, it must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. It's true. That's where it's found. That's where you're perfect. You're struggling to find, you know, people say this, I'm trying to find myself. I can tell you where to find yourself. <laughs> I can tell you where to find yourself. You can find yourself in a relationship with God. And by the way, when you come to him and you surrender to him, guess what you do? You free him up to begin orchestrating your life to take you on the path, on the journey that he created you for. And it's good. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your success, plans to give you a hope and a future. He told that to his people in the Old Testament. That principle is still true to his people in the 21st century. So I close with these three questions. Number one, are you living your life for the pleasure of God? Just for the sheer pleasure of being in a relationship with God. God, if this is all it is, it's worth it. Are you living your life for the prominence of God? God, I want my life to count. I want to, I want to bring glory to your name. I want people to see you in me. Number three, are you living your life for the purpose or the will of God? God, you created me for this. I'm going to live for this, and I'm going to accomplish your will. You see, your answer determines how you face the future. And by the way, did you notice verse 17? Did you notice verse 17, the last verse? Did you notice what he says? It's, it seems like a strange verse at the end of that, doesn't it? When he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about living your life, planning your life without God. And what he's saying to Christians is, you know that your life is intended to align with the plans and the purposes of God. And not to live your life that way when you know you ought to live your life that way is to fail in life, and that's sin because you haven't lived the way you know you're supposed to live. The right thing is to receive Him as Savior and Lord. That's how it all starts. The right thing for some people who have received Him may be to connect with a family. The right thing... For another, maybe just simply I need to obey Christ in something. Maybe God's put a call on your life. Maybe you need to obey him and be baptized. I don't know, but it's just to say, Jesus, I will obey you, whatever it is. George W. Truett was at one time the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, a historic church, and he was the founding pastor. But before he ever arrived there as a young boy, as a teenage boy, he was already a Christian, and there was a revival going on in his hometown. And 
and because he was already Christian, he wanted to go to the revival. And so he stopped by and asked one of his friends, one of his fellow teenage friends, if he would go with him to the revival. And his friend said to, to George, said this, no, not now, George, but later. Not now, George, I'll go later. Well, George Truett left his, his buddy and decided the next day he would go back by and invite his friend to go to the revival with him that night. And so he went uh, back by his friend's house. But the next day when, when Truett went by, by his friend's house, the mother came to the door and she said, George, I'm sorry, he can't, he can't come right now. He's very sick and in the bed. You come back and see him tomorrow. So George Truett went back the next day, but his friend was not any better Actually, he had become worse. And the doctors were there, and the diagnosis was not good. And George, once again, didn't get to see his friend. But he came back the next day, and when Truett went by the next day, the mother said with a face that was kind of drawn and taunt, she said, George, the doctor says that if you want to see him alive, you must come in now. And George Truett, this man who had become this great preacher, he went in to see his, his teenage friend and uh, who was sick in that room, and there his friend was. He lay sick in the, in the bed, uh, hardly able to breathe, uh, hardly able to speak, but Truett noticed that he was trying to say something to him. And George Truett was, was having difficulty hearing, but he said, I, I leaned over the bed so I could hear what my friend was saying to me, uh, and maybe I could understand it. And George said, I listened to my friend. And then I understood what he was saying. He was saying, not now, George, later. Not now, George, later. Not now, George, later. And short time after that, he died. True, it says, as a teenage boy, he said, I bowed my head and I said, oh God, I'll spend the rest of my life urging men to receive Jesus Christ now and not later. James says it's the right thing to do. If you've never trusted Christ, now, not later. Now, not later. Would you bow with me? Father, <clears throat> today is the day of salvation. And to know the right thing to do and not do it, to him it is sin. Father, help I pray for any that are listening, live stream, television, radio, wherever it may be in this live audience that needs you, help them not to put it off, not to say, later, later, I'll take care of that, but to understand that life is brief, as James has told us. Eternity is real. Father, I pray that you'll cause any that need you to recognize and call upon you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved right now and not later. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for our invitation time before we're gone? I'll be here at the front and staff on the sides, and I want to invite you to slip out. Maybe you already know Christ as your Savior. You just need a church home, and you want to come and join Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. Say, well, what I do, we'll take care of all that. You just come let us know. Balcony, ground floor. Uh, if you're watching by live stream or television, you'll see information on your screen about how to take next steps to join us or to trust Christ as your Savior. If you prayed that prayer and called on Him, you slip out. You come on, tell us about that decision uh, this morning. Maybe you want to come and pray. You're praying for someone who has said later, not now, 
and, and you want to pray for them and, and some direction, decision. You need the Lord to speak to you because you want to live for His purpose. You want to align your life with His will. Don't miss this moment. Take advantage of it before we're gone. Are you ready? As we begin to sing, you slip out right now. Come on, come on.